Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is episode 11, Illusion. In the last episode, we learned about the opening actions of the Sino-Japanese War. It quickly escalated into a bloodbath, and in some cases, irreversible damage. I left the story with the nationalists' retreat into the Chinese hinterlands, preparing to fight Japan at whatever cost would be necessary. I also posed a question to think about. The question is, or was, were the communists the only beneficiaries of the Sino-Japanese War? Remember the question. In this episode, I want to focus on the CCP side of the Japanese War. Was the Second United Front an illusion? Or just a powerful symbolic gesture to publicly show support for the common enemy Japan. There are many differing opinions. I will also discuss China's role in the greater event known as World War II. I cannot get too far into the Sino-Japanese War without a discussion of the role of the Communist or the CCP or the Communist Chinese Party. Since the abeyance of open warfare between the Guomindang and the CCP and their joint alliance of the United Front, you might have wondered what the CCP was up to. The CCP always viewed the war with Japan as inevitable. The CCP openly declared that Japan wanted to make China a colony. To Mao Zedong and his CCP confederates, war with Japan was a chance that the CCP could publicly show their patriotism and legitimacy. Mao also realized without the cessation of open warfare against them by the nationalists, the CCP most likely would have ceased to exist in China. But beyond the communist fear of the Japanese threat. The communists were also apprehensive and fearful the nationalists would acquiesce to or agree to a peace deal with Japan. That deal would likely have excluded the CCP and leave them in uncertain waters. Their paranoia about such an event even extended to the belief that the nationalists and the Japanese would agree to work together to get rid of the CCP. Be that as it may, it was obvious the war with Japan and the United Front appeared to benefit the communists. I am sure all of this weighed on Chiang Kai-shek's mind after his release in the Xi'an incident.
What was hammered out from the Xi'an incident between the Guomindang nationalists and the CCP? In the summer of 1937, the terms were publicly revealed. The terms would become the basis of the nationalists and the communists' understandings with respect to the Second United Front, at least at the start of the Japanese War, and, wink wink, ostensibly throughout the war. The communists agreed to strive for the realization of Sun Yat-sen's three people's principles. They further agreed to terminate their policies of armed revolt, Sovietization, and forcible confiscation of land. They further agreed to abolish the present China-Soviet Republic and to abolish the Red Army and place the troops under the control of the Nanjing government. In return, the Guomindang agreed to allow the CCP to set up and operate liaison offices in several cities for the purposes or for the purpose of recruitment. They also allowed the CCP to publish the new China Daily, its main political mouthpiece. They also allowed to nominate representatives to two of the nationalist principal advisory bodies. For at least the first couple of years after their alliance, their cooperation and understanding waxed and waned, but by and large, they managed to abide by the spirit of their new alliance. In any event, any hiccups the two sides may have had with each other were washed away after it was clear the atrocities the Japanese committed at Nanjing. By that time, the CCP was publicly proclaiming their support for Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist government. As Chiang Kai-shek drew the Japanese deeper into the war's quagmire, the escalation, as Mao Zedong saw it, benefited the CCP. Remember, Mao saw peace between Chiang Kai-shek and the Japanese at the early stages of the war as a potential reversal of all the gains and growth and the future of the CCP. That is not suggesting that the CCP wanted a Japanese victory, much to the contrary. The CCP needed and wanted time so their organization could work, could work their way into any peace solutions and future after the war. Mao Zedong saw the United Front with the Guomindang as a public way to show support for the nationalist government and the two-party alliance and not necessarily to submit to Nanjing's authority. At the beginning of the war with Japan, the CCP had at their disposal about 30,000 troops. Many were hardened from the travails of the Long March. Early in the war, Chiang Kai-shek formed the new Fourth Army to operate in central China. That army consisted of remnants of communist forces led by commanders appointed by Chiang Kai-shek. And as always, the devil is in the details. 
it quickly became clear there was an issue. How would the alliance work in military affairs? For example, who commanded the units? Should the nationalists have separate units, or should the units contain both nationalists and communists? Which strategy would be used, the nationalists or the communists? There were a myriad of practical issues that had to be resolved. It quickly became clear that the CCP's vision for the war's prosecution was different from that of the nationalists. The first three years of the war saw rapid expansion of both the CCP and their armies. By the end of 1940, the CCP had swelled to one-half million members, and by 1945, 1.2 million. The armies grew at an even faster clip. By 1940, grew to a half million, eventually reaching to almost one million by 1945. The first military victory for the Communist forces was in Shanxi province in late September of 1937. Not a large victory, but a victory nonetheless. By the end of the second year of the war, the CCP was in its best position ever. As a result of the war, they were stronger and more widely spread out, with armies, territories, and followers scattered across North and Central China. Its leadership was more unified than ever before. Still, caution prevailed for the future of the CCP. Remember, before the bloody breakup of 1927, the Communists, after the First United Front and the near annihilation after the Long March in 1936, had experienced rapid growth. Could the CCP survive a third buildup? That weighed very much on the communist leaders' minds. By late 1938 and early 1939, the international coalition against Japan collapsed because of the rising tensions in Europe. All attempts to return to the principles of internationalism had faded. Appeasement was the new rage, at least in the European theater. In Asia, specifically with Japan in mind, appeasement was less likely. The Western nations wanted a more aggressive counter toward Japan than with Germany. The Western nations would rather aid China than appease Japan. And by the end of 1938, the USA was loaning money to China. The reason Western nations did not use appeasement with Japan is not clear. It may have had something to do with Japan's attitude and public pronouncements that it would never give up their China commitments. The West may have felt that the Japanese military could not be checked by Japan's civil authorities. It appeared to everyone Japan's military controlled their China policy, and the military clearly gestured it would not budge from that strategy. 
Germany saw Japan's belligerence as useful to keep the United States busy in Asia and out of the way. Of course, these positions, in time, formed the Axis Alliance in 1940 between Germany and Japan. From that point, the Far East and the European War were joined. Matters were also coalescing for the Western powers. In late 1940, the ABC line, or the encirclement, began against Japan. These were a series of of embargoes by the United States, Britain, China, and the Dutch Dutch East Indies, hence ABCD, to to deny Japan oil, steel, and iron ore. The measures were a big reason for Japan's decision to go to war against the Western powers and her bombing of Pearl Harbor. As a result of all of this, China finally had Western alliances. Her destiny was linked with the United States and England. The United States began to provide China with aviation experts, pilots, and planes organized as the Flying Tigers, to run sorties against Japanese air forces in China. When the United States enacted the land lease program to aid England, it applied it to China as well. Oddly, however, with the alliance, China found itself fighting for democracy. With the alliance, China had legitimate hope that it would prevail against Japan. Japan, of course, not blind to all of this, tried unsuccessfully to negotiate with the Allies over the issues with China. China's position, however, was enhanced further when in June 1941, Adolf Hitler attacked the Soviet Union. That resulted in the Soviet Union joining the Western Alliance. A big blow to Japan. Japan then had to be careful in its war with China not to agitate the Russians and bring them into the China fight against Japan. After several attempts to find a peaceful resolution in China, Japan, of course, made the fortuitous decision to attack Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. With that, The Sino-Japan War had merged with the Greater Allied War. China was solidly enmeshed as a member of the alliance against the excess powers. 1939 is considered the transition year in the Sino-Japanese War, both with respect to the CCP situation and the war with Japan. From the start of the war, the CCP was focused on expanding their territory. While the nationalists had been forced out of many areas by the Japanese, the CCP fell in behind the Japanese lines, replacing the nationalists. For the Japanese, they reached a turning point as well. Their decision for China was, should it consolidate their gains in China? or drive further into China. In 1939, Japan was deeply divided over this issue. 
Japan tried more diplomatic and peace efforts, but those went nowhere. This entire time, the nationalists were not blind to what the CCP was doing. And by early 1939, the nationalists began several initiatives to check the CCP's further expansion. In particular, the area around Yan'an had been consolidated. There, the nationalists surrounded and blockaded them in 1939. The cost was high. As much as 400,000 nationalist troops were used in the campaign against the CCP. Some of these troops were pulled away from resisting the Japanese, and some of the units were the finest the nationalists had. While costly, it appeared to be effective in ultimately controlling the CCP. For the CCP, it had to walk a fine line wanting to appear in full support of the Second United Front. So this certainly limited its ability to respond to the nationalists. Nevertheless, by 1940, the CCP once again seemed to be rebounding from the nationalist efforts against them. They were also making gains in central China that had been in the nationalist control. In 1940, the acrimony between the Guomindang and the CCP was large and growing. They held meetings attempting to resolve their differences. In January 1941, the armed forces of each of these sides clashed near Shanghai. Called the New Fourth Army Incident, it was the official end to the cooperation of the nationalists and the CCP and the Second United Front. The Civil War had commenced again, right in the middle of the war against Japan. The the incident may be a tactical victory for the nationalists, but the CCP clearly won the political and propaganda sides. The CCP emerged from the incident reorganized, and the balance of power behind Japanese lines turned in favor of the CCP, and that dominance would continue to grow. In the next episode, we learn how the Chinese fight against Japan became the Western Allies' war as well. China will be thrust into the World War conflict to play a key role. I'll bring you to the climatic events of the Sino-Japanese War, events that will heavily affect the fate of China, the nationalists, and the communists. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.